0: Our text today is taken from Daniel chapter 7, and we'll be focusing upon verses 23 through 25. Daniel 7, verses 23 through 25. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings." And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. Since the little horn here in Daniel chapter 7, is revealed by God in Daniel's dream to be a chief persecutor against the saints of the Lord and making war against them and prevailing over them. It's certainly not trivial, and nor is it wasted time on our parts to seek to identify who this little horn is in history. If it was important enough for the Lord to give to Daniel this information in this dream concerning the little horn, and if Daniel was particularly interested in knowing what does that mean, that little horn that appeared among the ten, and he wanted to know what is that little horn, tell me, he, he's asking this interpreting angel, tell me what it means. If it was of such importance to Daniel to know, should it not be important for us to know? If it was important for God to reveal it, should it not be important for us to want to know and to understand who the little horn is? In fact, I submit that the little horn in Daniel 7 is the same as the man of sin and the son of perdition. In Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses three through four. I also submit that the little horn is the same as the Antichrist that is mentioned in 1 John 2 18. And then I also submit to you that the little horn is the same as the image of the beast that is revealed in Revelation 13, verses 15 through 16. The image of the beast who requires all to receive the mark of the beast in order to buy and to sell. See, this is not a light subject, is it? Not light at all. It's, in fact, I submit to you, it's very troubling. It's a very troubling subject for us to be uh, discussing. But it was also troubling to our Protestant and Reformed forefathers who declared in 1647 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, section 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist that man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. There was any claim by any individual other than Jesus Christ to be the visible head of the church on earth is to blasphemously usurp the office of Jesus Christ as the only head of the church. As we see in Vatican, at Vatican I in 1870, uh, this is what was declared concerning the papacy. All the faithful of Christ must believe that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff possess the primacy over the whole world and that the Roman Pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and is true vicar of Christ and head of the whole church and father and teacher of all Christians. You see, that is an example of the blasphemous speaking of great words against the Most High that is mentioned in Daniel 7, 25. Main points today from our text are these. First of all, the little horn changes times and laws in Daniel 7, verses 23 through 25. The second main point the extended length of time that the little horn persecutes the saints in Daniel seven twenty-five. First of all, then the little horn changes times and laws. Verses twenty three through twenty-five. <clears throat> Thus he said the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. The Lord expects us to take the characteristics uh, that we find here in Daniel 7 pertaining to the the little horn, and then to locate in history which entity has those characteristics. Doesn't, uh, the Lord doesn't want us again to, to simply read it and leave it at that, but he wants us to be able to identify. He's not given it to us to be a mystery to us. He's given these characteristics so that we might identify in history. Who fulfills those characteristics of the little horn? That's what we have sought to do thus far, and we'll continue to do so in the sermon this Lord's Day. So let's very quickly review those characteristics. First of all, the little horn appears on the head of the Roman beast. In other words, the little horn is connected to Rome. Uh, In fact, the Uh, we find with regard to the papacy, the capital of the papacy is in Rome. We also have noted that the the very title of the emperor of Rome uh, as the chief or supreme priest of the emperor worship was Pontifex Maximus and uh, the, the, the Roman Pope has assumed that same title, that same name as well. Secondly, the little horn appears, we have seen, among ten horns. Uh, Ten horns that divided uh, the United Western Empire, Roman Empire. And we've identified those uh, in history, in the 5th and 6th century, as being barbarian kingdoms, which invaded that part of the Roman Empire, divided it. Uh, The last... uh, roman emperor in rome that was who was deposed uh was uh, romulus augustus in 476 the ten horns uh, gained power uh to rule we've also noted this Uh, there was not uh Prior to the first century that these ten horns ruled, it was not during the first century that these ten horns ruled. Uh, it, according to Ro- uh, Revelation seventeen twelve, John says that in identifying the ten horns there, he says that they have not yet, even in the first century, received their power to rule. So they're subsequent to the first century. They were to arise these ten kingdoms. So if the ten kingdoms have not Uh, yet arisen with power in the first century, then neither has the little horn. The little horn would come to uh, be among the the ten horns, therefore after the first century, which again we find is, as far as our chronology, looking into the period of time after the first century, the Roman Empire was divided into these, Various kingdoms, ten kingdoms in the 5th and 6th centuries is when the papacy arose uh, among them uh, and began to exercise great power uh, as it grew and grew in power at that time. You see, when the last emperor in Rome was deposed, who filled the spot? Who filled the vacancy? It was the papacy that was yet in Rome that filled the uh, the 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 uh, the throne, as it were, that had been vacated by the emperor thirdly, the little horn is different Daniel in the vision in the dream or in this vision rather uh, the little horn is different from uh, the other kingdoms in that it grows. To great, not only uh, political power. You see, all of the other ten kingdoms had political power, but what makes the, this horn, this this little horn, different from the others, and makes it diverse from the others, is that it has ecclesiastical power as well. In fact, it is chiefly an ecclesiastical power that that asserts as it grows ever greater in power asserts more and more political power. So it is diverse. Fourthly, the little horn has eyes of knowledge. In fact, as we've noted, it claims an infallible knowledge. Uh, The papacy claims an infallible knowledge. in matters of faith and morality. Fifthly, The Little Horn speaks great words, great words of blasphemy against the Most High, against the Lord. Again, the papacy claims the prerogatives and the titles of God and of Jesus Christ. Claims to forgive sin. Claims to be the head of the the church here upon the earth. Sixthly, the little horn grows to become stout, stronger than the other horns, the other ten, the other kingdoms. And this we see as well uh, in the papacy. Uh, Though being little, it does grow to increase in great power, even exercising power over kings and over kingdoms deposing kings, crowning kings. Seventh, the little horn makes war against the saints and persecuting the saints and requiring submission to his decrees. So we see this is very much the case throughout history that the papacy has exercised that type of power uh, in persecuting uh, faith, the faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ because they would not bow the knee submit to the authority of the Pope well there are two more characteristics that we are going to consider concerning the little horn in the sermon today and so we'll get to those in just a moment. So beginning here in Daniel 7.23, the interpreting angel, when it says, thus he said, the he there, is the interpreting angel that uh, Daniel had sought more information from concerning the fourth beast, concerning the ten kingdoms, and concerning the little horn. And so here we see... Uh, that uh, the identity is given of the fourth beast in verse 23, and uh, we've identified in history that to be Rome. Then uh, in verse 24, uh, the interpreting angel speaks of the ten horns and says that they are ten kingdoms, uh, ten kings or ten kingdoms, and uh, we've identified that as well as being the barbarian kingdoms that divided the Western Roman Empire in the 5th and 6th centuries. And then uh, we come to verse 25, uh, the end of verse 24, and, uh, uh, and then into verse 25, uh, concerning the little horn. And that's where we now having already really addressed in previous sermons uh, the little horn speaking great words against the Most High, having also even last Lord's Day addressed the characteristic of the little horn in wearing out the saints, the Most High, oppressing them, persecuting them. Now we come to the next characteristic of the little horn. And that is, the little horn would claim a supreme legislative power to change times and laws. To change times and laws. So what does it mean to change times? Well, uh, the word there for uh, times, it refers to the power to add to or to alter appointed uh, religious feasts and holy days to add or to uh, remove, to to alter religious feasts and holy days. Um, this is a, indeed not a power that Jesus, the only head of the church, has given to any person on earth to add holy days to our religious calendar. Uh, you see, worship is only appointed by God. Holy days are only appointed by God. Think of the Old Testament. Which of the holy days were appointed by by a man in the Old Testament? None of them. They are all appointed by God. Because worship, all worship, is appointed by the Lord alone. The holy days of the Old Testament were shadows that have been abolished now uh, by the Lord Jesus. Those feast and festival days. Uh, of an annual nature Uh, in Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 uh, we read that they were shadows neither Jesus nor the apostles uh, and this brings us up to holy days in this present age neither Jesus nor the apostles appointed or celebrated Christmas or celebrated Easter as holy days to be observed by Christians. Um, All one has to do, if that were the case, is to go to the Bible and say that this is where Jesus appointed uh, uh, Christmas or Easter to be celebrated, or to show where um, uh, the apostles actually celebrated Christmas or Easter. But again, uh, no one ever does that because it's not found in the scripture. These are holy days that were appointed by men, not by the Lord God. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 28, 20, which we just finished reading in our New Testament scripture reading. As he gives his apostles instructions, as he gives his ministers instructions, what they are to teach. What does he say? teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Not whatever you think might be really good to introduce into the religious calendar to celebrate, but what I have commanded you. And so we need a command from God if we're going to celebrate a holy day we need a command from God to do so. But the Pope has introduced all manner, countless holy days to be celebrated. The only holy day that the Lord has given to us in the New Covenant to celebrate is the Lord's Day. It's called that in Revelation 110, which is the Christian Sabbath. The papacy, dear ones, has changed times by appointing countless holy days throughout history to impose such holy days understand that when you have the authority when or you claim to have the authority to impose holy days you are exercising a great authority over a church and over a nation that accepts that religion you are basically saying you cannot work on that day because that is a holy day. You cannot. You must attend Mass on that day. It is a mortal sin for you not to attend Mass on that day. That's an extreme authority which is claimed by the papacy in imposing these holy days. It's a matter of control. It shows how much control, how much power is invested or claimed to be invested in the papacy. Holy days of obligation, that's a technical phrase, holy days of obligation, are mandated by the papacy to be observed by all Roman Catholics in which they must attend the Mass is not optional. They must attend the mass and they must ab- uh, abstain from all unnecessary works according to canon 1247 Canon 1247 of the Code of Canon Law The holy days holy days of obligation that technical phrase required by the papacy in this year, 2023. They've been greatly narrowed uh, uh, since 1969, Uh, but these are the holy days appointed, uh, uh, holy days of obligation for this year. First of all, on January the 1st, the Holy Day, the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God. On May the 18th, the Ascension of Jesus. On August the 15th, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. What's the Assumption? It's basically uh, her bodily resurrection. After three days of death, her bodily resurrection into heaven, body and soul into heaven, just like Jesus Christ, the bodily assumption of Mary. The next uh, holy day of obligation, November the 1st, All Saints' Day. You see, instead of uh, as they used to have uh, prior to 1969, they had multitudes of saints days throughout the year that they were required to keep and to celebrate now they've just put them all together in all saints day now, rather than having as if you look at the the calendar you go to just do a search of uh, 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 saints days within the holy uh, within the roman catholic church and there are there are uh, literally, on every day of the year, a, a saint that is to be honored uh, and to be celebrated on that day. But they've uh, consolidated them uh, under All Saints' Day, uh, November the first. December the eighth uh, is the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That is. The Immaculate Conception doesn't refer to the conception of Jesus. It refers to her conception, that she was conceived without sin and she lived a sinless life, her entire life. And then December 25th, Christmas. These are not optional, but bind the conscience of those in the Church of Rome this is the changing of times that I submit to you that is referred to here by the, that the little horn would change times. Let me mention one other, I think, significant changing of times. Uh, it was Pope Gregory Thirteenth in 1582 that decreed, by way of a papal bull, a uh, dec- papal declaration, that the calendar used for over a thousand years, the Julian calendar, must be changed among Roman Catholic nations to the Gregorian calendar. But One certainly can argue that the Gregorian calendar rectified various errors that were in the Julian calendar, but is it not still an indication of such pronounced power on the part of the Pope to decree a changing of times, to decree that a a different calendar uh, be used. The little horn also said to change laws, change times and change laws. The papacy's power in adding to or subtracting from God's laws uh, is well known, and even human laws is well known. In the code of canon law of the Roman Catholic Church, we see, again, the supreme authority, the papacy, established to change laws. In canon 331, it says, By virtue of his office, speaking of the popes, he possesses supreme, full immediate and universal, ordinary power in the church, which he is always able to exercise freely. Then in Canon 333, paragraph 3, it says, No appeal or recourse is permitted against a sentence or decree of the Roman pontiff. No recourse. No appeal. The papacy... Claims to legislate laws concerning doctrine and morals for the universal church throughout the whole world. For example, as we, we have already spoken, but let me just mention, for example, the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854 was declared to be infallible doctrine, that Mary was conceived without sin, and lived a sinless life. In 1869 and 70, uh, it was declared by the uh, the Pope uh, the infallibility of the papacy. That the, when the Pope declares that which pertains to doctrine and mor- and morals, sitting as as king upon his throne. Uh, that, uh, again, he speaks infallibly. He cannot err. It's impossible for him to err. That's what infallibility means. And then in 1950, uh, the Assumption of Mary uh, was declared uh, to be infallible doctrine within the Roman Catholic Church. Her Assumption bodily, uh, after she died, bodily, body and soul into heaven, So that certainly is a legislating of laws concerning doctrine and morals. The papacy changes God's law, making, for example, images and kneeling before images to be required, to be holy, to be worshipful when God's commandment says, Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to that graven image. Yet the papacy, by way of its power, declares that it is not a breaking, that it has the power to say it is acceptable to bow down, to kneel before graven images. By acts of reverence. The papacy changes God's law in forbidding marriage uh, to priests and commanding to abstain from certain meats uh, on uh, Fridays. Uh, these are acts. These are marks of the apostasy, the great apostasy that was spoken of in the New Testament. You turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. speaks of a, a, a falling away, an apostasy. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. That's the falling away. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry that's the first prohibition forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which god hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth in fact we see that pope gregory the 7th And the Second Lateran Council in 1139 forbade the marriage of the priesthood. The priesthood cannot marry. Pope Nicholas I in 866 prohibited meat to be eaten on Fridays. uh, Out as a fast. of Every Friday as an acknowledged, appointed fast uh, concerning... Christ's death (laughs) upon the cross. It is very, again, very telling that here uh, these very things that are mentioned by way of this apostasy are that which we see within the Roman Catholic Church and which we see uh, has been uh, mandated uh, by the papacy There's an, an just if you go to Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses three through four, there's an another passage that speaks of this falling away of this apostasy. And notice what it says, and I tie these two passages of scripture together. Second Thessalonians Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. That's the apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. I submit to you, that's the papacy. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, that is, in the church of God, showing himself that he is God. This is associated again with the the apostasy mentioned in, in the New Testament. And there we see again that the papacy very much demonstrates its authority, its Um, claimed authority to change laws by way of forbidding marriage, uh, by way of commanding uh, to abstain from meats. The papacy changes, uh, again by way of laws, the papacy changes Christ's glory to make the Pope the visible head of the universal church on earth we've noted that the papacy changes god's authority and claims the power to forgive sins in the new catechism of the catholic faith page 62 the question is asked does the priest really forgive your sins the answer with the power of christ given to him in the sacrament of holy orders the priest really forgives your sin We noted, I think, last Lord's Day, the papacy has legislated through its power the deposing of kings. Pope Gregory Seventh in 1075 decreed, quote, that it may be permitted to him, that is to the papacy, to depose emperors and asserted the papal power to, quote, absolve Subjects from their fealty, their loyalty to wicked men, that is to kings that have been excommunicated by the papacy. Also, the papacy has claimed the power to make kings, to crown kings, as Pope Leo III did in December twenty-fifth, 1800, when he crowned Charlemagne emperor of the Roman Empire. I dare say, dear ones, that there has not been a more powerful dynasty ruling in Western, in the Western world, nor for as long as the papacy has ruled from its throne in Rome. The power of the papacy to change times and laws that affect church, that affect state, that affect family, are demonstrable throughout history. This characteristic of the little horn to change times and laws, I submit to you, is realized in the papacy. Our second main point, the extended length of time that the little horn persecutes the saints. verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. The interpreting angel gives a time in which the persecution of the saints by the little horn would continue. That length of time here is said to be a time, times, and dividing of a time, in verse 25. How long is that period of time? Well, I think that we can find out the answer to that when we turn to the book of Revelation. Because there, in Revelation 12:14 we read, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, from the face of the serpent. The, the woman is the faithful church whom God protects during this period of time. Uh, said to be a time, times, and half a time, or dividing of a time. And then if we go to, in the book of Revelation, uh, to Revelation twelve six, we read, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there, a thousand two hundred and three score days. So a time times and half a time is equal to twelve hundred and sixty days, which is three and a half years. So a time is one year, times is two years, one plus two is three, a dividing of a time or half a time is a half. and a half years or twelve hundred and sixty days and the next question is this, is this period of time twelve hundred and sixty days to be interpreted literally or prophetically in other words is the period of time that the little horn wages war against the saints and fulfills all the characteristics that we've already looked at in Daniel chapter 7, is that to be realized in the short period of three and a half years, or is this a much longer period of time? Well, how would we determine that? How would we know that? Well, we, again, must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We must allow Scripture to interpret even prophetic numbers, and prophetic uh, amounts of time. And it does that for us. For example, in the very same book of Daniel, which we'll get to, God willing, uh, in, in the near future, in Daniel 9.24, Daniel 9.24, we see that there is a prophecy given there uh, to Daniel and it says 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city and then it lists the various uh, items that would be fulfilled in those 70 weeks and uh, all conservative scholars that I'm aware of interpret the 70 weeks not to be 70 weeks of days 490 days but they interpret the 70 weeks to be 70 weeks of years 490 years and yet it says 70 weeks so that that particular prophecy is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, his first coming, and if we were to interpret it as 70 weeks of days, it would be roughly a one and a third years. Jesus Christ did not return, or did not come, in his first coming a, year, a one and a, one third years after Daniel made the prophecy. It was 490 years that we see that this prophecy was realized where, again, a day, a prophetic day equals one year. And so even within the the book of Daniel, we find the interpretive key to understanding that a day equals a year three and a half years or three three and a half years here or which would be 12 hundred and sixty days equals 12 hundred and sixty years likewise in numbers 1434 it says after the number of the days in which, Ye searched the land, even forty days. Each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. You recall in that particular case, the Lord is judging Israel based upon the day-year principle. Twelve spies had been sent out into the land to explore the land of Canaan for forty days. Ten of the spies came back with an evil report, basically discouraging the people from entering into the land, believing the promise of God that God would give to them the land as he said he would. And they rebelled. They disbelieved. They said, we cannot enter into the land. We cannot take these giants that are in the land. And so the Lord brought judgment upon them. Forty days that they were out looking in the land, he gave to them 40 years of judgment, one day, or one year for each day. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, we read, Ezekiel says, For I have laid upon, or God says, For I laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days 390 days so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel and when thou hast accomplished this lie again on thy right side and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days I have appointed thee each a day for a year and so in this particular instance Ezekiel is commanded to lie first of all on his left side uh, for 390 days doesn't mean You know, without getting up or anything, but but for a period of time in the day, he was to he was to lie on his left side, and he was to do that for 390 days, as exhibiting the sins of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then, the Lord commands Ezekiel to lie on his right side, uh, for 40 days as exhibiting the sins of the southern kingdom of Judah in verse 6. And in both cases, the Lord says that the day and amount of days that he was to lie on each side represented a day for a year. That it would be uh, that amount of time that they uh, had sinned against the lord their god 390 days on the on the part of israel 40 days on the part of judah speaking of 390 years of sin and iniquity on the part of israel 40 years of sin and iniquity on the part of judah again for every day that he laid on his side, represented one year. And so again, the time, times, and dividing of time here that we find is the length of time, 1260 prophetic days, which is 1260 actual years, a year for every day. That's the amount of time that the Lord says that the saints would wage war and that the little horn would wage war against his faithful witnesses, against the saints, for that amount of time that he would show forth all these characteristics that we, that we have been looking at uh, in Daniel chapter 7, particularly changing of times and laws and speaking great things, blasphemous things against the Most High. Uh, all these particular characteristics uh, that we have noted for 1260 1260, uh, prophetic days, which are 1260 actual years. Now I ask again, is there a kingdom on earth that has waged war against and oppressed the faithful witnesses of Christ for as long as the papal kingdom of Rome, the papal kingdom of Antichrist? I know of none. I submit that this final characteristic of the little horn is likewise realized in the papacy. I do have some application that I want to leave with you as we bring the sermon to a close this Lord's Day. I do plan to address one more item in Daniel 7 next God willing next Lord's Day and that would have to do with when did this period of time begin uh, when did the 1260 year period in which uh, the, uh, the papacy the little horn uh, began to truly show forth and exercise um, uh, this power Uh, reach that pinnacle exercising that power that we see in history and that we see prophetically spoken of in um, daniel chapter 7 when did that begin because if it's 1260 years uh, the lord again has given us those time periods so that we can calculate doesn't we're not calculating the coming of christ We're not calculating when Jesus is going to return. What we're talking about here is the period of time that uh, this little horn exercises that type of power against God's people uh, and uh, speaking blasphemous things against the Lord himself and when that power will come to an end. His power, the papal power, when it will come to an end. So again, God willing, we will consider that question next Lord's Day. But as we close today, in the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 20, section 2, God alone, it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it. In matters of faith or worship. The so papacy claims the power to enslave the conscience of men to mere human traditions. Christ, on the other hand, sets us free to walk in obedience, not to the papacy, not to the papacy's decrees, to he sets us free to walk in obedience and to delight in his commandments what are found in his holy word even the apostles themselves did not claim what the papacy claims to be able to do by way of lording it over the consciences of men the apostle paul says in second corinthians 124 not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. We are helpers. We do not lord it. We cannot lord it over your conscience. God alone is lord of the conscience. That means that our conscience is not even our lord. See, we can either say and... and re- if we're not going to allow God to be Lord of our conscience, we can say, well, uh, we are Lord of our own conscience. But no, the Bible doesn't teach us that we are Lord over our own conscience. No man, not even ourselves, is Lord over our own conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And so if we do not have, again, uh, God speaking in his word and telling us what to believe, and what to practice here uh, in His Word? Then, uh, then, again, certainly, man does not. We have God's Word that does speak to those things what we are to believe, and man does not have the authority to tell us uh, what to believe. I do not have the authority to tell you what to believe. None of our elders, none of our reformers have the authority to tell you what to believe and to command that you believe this or that you practice this particular holy day that's not appointed in the word of God. None of us have that authority. Only Jesus Christ has that authority. And if we cannot find it in the Bible, then we cannot mandate it, we cannot require it of you, God's people. But the Pope claims to be able to do that. The papacy claims to be able to do that, even if it's not revealed in God's word. See, Jesus, as alone the head of the church, he's given his authority to his faithful ministers and elders to rule on his behalf in his church. But their authority is bound by the written word of God. They cannot go beyond the authority of of God's word. It's not bound by the mere words or traditions of men, as is claimed by the papacy. Thus saith the Lord. That's what we must always look for. Where does Christ teach that in his word? The second application. The papacy wages war for 1,260 years against God's faithful witnesses who stand for scriptural authority alone over tradition and papal authority in doctrine, worship, church, state, family. The greatest and most important preparation, dear ones, that we can make in this battle, in this war, that the enemy wages against us is spiritual preparation. That's not to discount food preparation uh, at any time. I mean, it's a good idea, I think, at all times to be prepared for whatever may come our way as Joseph, prepared for the seven years of famine and during the seven years of plenty. I think that's always a good idea. But I believe the most important preparation that we can make in this battle with the enemy is spiritual preparation. We must realize, Darren, that the real enemies are not political leaders, are not religious leaders, are not economic leaders, are not world leaders, are not technological leaders. But the real enemies are spiritual enemies in high places. In Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who the real enemy is that we are that we are uh, waging war against. Spiritual, satanic, demonic. Certainly Satan has his his, uh, people that he uses to accomplish his purposes in this world. But we need to see that the real enemy lies behind them. And so... Because that is the case, let's not resort to mere earthly resources in fighting this battle against this enemy. Let us be armed with God's armor, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and all the other armor, the pieces of armor that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, with prayer, spending time with God, discipling the nations, as Jesus has told us to do, beginning with our own children. There's not a more important group of people that you can disciple than your own children. Teaching, instructing, training them in the ways of the Lord. Spending time in teaching them what God says, taking them back to god 's word whenever they face questions, controversies, problems in their life, taking them back to what god says that 's how we prepare again for this battle. you know human resources can are going to fail us uh, in in many if not most situations, if it's prolonged and, and, and if it's the kind of attack that comes against us, that we don't have the resources to fight against it. But what will not fail us is, are the spiritual resources that we have in Jesus Christ and in his word. And so let us prioritize that. Not again that we don't prepare materially as best as we are able but that we especially prepare spiritually which tells us we cannot afford to be lazy we cannot afford to be indifferent sitting on our couches and expecting that you know that that everything's just going to go fine uh, we don't need to be prepared we don't need to prepare our children for what lies ahead. We are in a war, a 1,260 year war that began many years ago with this, this particular enemy, this little horn, but we are in a war against uh, the, the enemy of our souls, Satan. We cannot afford to be lukewarm in this battle. We have to again be resorting to our God. For his help, his strength, every single day. Because what's at stake? What's at stake would be our souls. What's at stake are the souls of our children. What's at stake are the souls of our brethren. What's at stake are the souls of our neighbors, their eternal souls. And we overcome this enemy as the faithful witnesses of christ have always overcome the enemy in revelation twelve eleven, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto death they overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and in other words a redeeming testimony by by virtue of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, his powerful death and his resurrection and overcoming. That's the foundation of our victory over the enemy. What Christ has accomplished. Not what I accomplished, but what he accomplished on the cross. And purchasing me unto himself, purchasing. You who believe and trust in him, unto himself, all of his people, unto himself, giving to them everlasting life, giving to them the tools to be able to fight in this war. And so there's a redeeming testimony. They came in by the blood of the Lamb. But there's also a living testimony, by the word of their testimony, by their by the word they spoke, by the life that they lived, they overcame the enemy. They not only had the, rede- the redemption of Jesus Christ, but they practiced it in their lives. They spoke of it and what Jesus Christ had accomplished in their lives. They lived it out by way of obedience to God's commandments. And then there's a dying testimony. They loved not their lives unto death. And they overcame. They were not overcome even if they died for Jesus Christ. They overcame the enemy even in their death. And that has always been true of the faithful witnesses of Christ. They overcome the enemy by a redeeming testimony, by way of a living testimony, and by way of a dying testimony. That's the only way that we are going to overcome the enemy that comes against us. Which is, again, Satan and all of his hosts who uses political leaders certainly to persecute God's faithful witnesses, who uses religious leaders like the little horn to persecute and wage war against God's people. But let us not fear. Jesus Christ has already conquered. He is King of kings. Let us again take great comfort, encouragement in the fact that our Savior sits at God's right hand. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise thee and thank thee for thy goodness, thy tender mercies unto us, that thou hast shown us uh, in thy word, given us warning, uh, told us, our Lord, uh, so much of what has occurred in history, what shall come in history that we might be prepared that we might be prepared especially spiritually uh, for this battle that we would prepare not only ourselves but our children our families one another Lord we thank thee that the Lord Jesus is head of the church not any man we thank thee that he is king and reigns at thy right hand, that he has already won the victory for us, and that we need not fear what man can do unto us. Our Lord, we pray that thou would go before us, that thou would teach and instruct us, Lord, to put on daily the whole armor of God, that we wouldn't wake up and go about our day forgetting that, that armor uh, to war against the enemy, that, Lord, it would be a part of just our daily uh, exercise, that we would be prepared, whatever comes our way each and every day, to do war against the enemy. We ask, Lord, hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen.